Hello, and welcome back to the Moral Minority Show. I'm your host, Joel Sam, joined as always by my co-host, Josh Luckett. We just finished a great season on deconstruction where we discussed, um, you know, what is it about the Christian faith that we need to let go of? How are people encountering faith transitions, especially in the past few years in the wake of political turmoil, in the wake of shifting theology um, conversations between theologians, podcasters, lay people. Um, what, what does it mean to be part of this community that follows Jesus? And when we respond to, uh, especially in the context of American evangelicalism, um, how, how do we uh, evolve in that context and what is worth leaving behind? So now we're entering a new season uh, where we're calling this one, What is Christianity? And so maybe you're someone who has deconstructed your faith, gone through faith transitions, you're, you, you've changed your theology at some point in the past few years, and you're wondering, you know, what is this thing that we believe? Like what, if, if I want to reconstruct my faith and I, and I still think that following Jesus is worth it, then what is it exactly that we're doing here? What is the core of what we believe? And how can we engage that core in a way that doesn't feel like we are subscribing to a machine, that we're subscribing to a religion that um, kind of takes over or, or causes us to leave behind a part of ourselves, causes us to leave behind um, our rationality. Maybe, maybe it causes us to leave behind our emotion. Sometimes we can be in these toxic communities that um, cause us to strip away those things, and that's what's caused us to deconstruct. So what is it? What is Christianity as its core? Um, so Josh and I are going to have this conversation all season long, um, but we have a new tradition here on the podcast. Um, something we like to do is for the first episode of each season, we like to bring back an old friend, and that is one of the founders of the podcast and the co-host of seasons one and two, Nina Leon. Nina, thanks for being on the program today. Thanks for having me. You said old friend, and I felt like I was internally like this 40-year-old person, like coming back to hang out <laughs> with the kids. <laughs> I'm glad to Not be back. Well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here if all. it weren't for you. So um, we're really grateful for <laughs> you and Josh starting this podcast way back when. It's always a good time. Um, Nina, uh, always, always, always so fun to have you. Um, do you have any life updates for us? Any really big things that have happened since the last time you were on the pod? No, man. I am a mom of two little kids. So every day is kind of the same. In <laughs> and out, you know, doing the whole corporate America thing. So um, I'm grateful and just trying to cherish the time that we have with them and be intentional about it. But yeah, life with small kids is rough. So we're just kind of taking it one day at a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't even imagine. Yeah, any, honestly, any mom that has, uh, I mean, really just, I, I think COVID over the last couple of years, it's just like a, you know, whether it's school, home life, everything's had to adjust tremendously being a parent. And so, um, so I can, I can only imagine. Oh man, it's a good time. But yeah, I would, I would 
oh, I would recommend a long wait, right? For anyone yeah. <laughs> looking to have kids, just come babysit for a couple of hours and then make your decision <laughs> after that. Cause oof, it's rough. Yeah. I was actually just telling no, someone at lunch today, like how incomprehensible it is for me to like think about having kids right now. And, um, I was, I was with this conversation with, I'm 26, two other friends of mine who are 31. They're both also single and, uh, the worship pastor at our church. And we asked him like, Hey Wes, like, um, when you like, what was it like when you first had kids? And he was like, well, I got married when I was 22, had my first kid when I was 23. And uh, we just had four kids within five years. And I was like, what? That's wild. Like he had four kids before he hit the age of any of us at the table. And I was like, this is insane. I can't even comprehend this. But it's almost like you just kind of learn to roll with the punches. You just kind of like learn to, not not that kids are punches, but um, you kind of learn to adapt to whatever whatever scenario (laughs) you're in. Well, I think it's so different, right? Because these ones are, I'm, we're fostering them mm-hmm. right now, but I bet you some sort of scratch. And so just the idea of bringing a whole new person into the world, like mm-hmm. on my own volition, like that seems, I don't, I'm really struggling with the morality behind that. Um, not that like, I love these children here, but like just the concept, I, I agree with you, is so crazy because like kids didn't ask to be here, right? And so dealing with that and, you know, even now, like how do you raise human beings to be kind and mm. and religion and growing up in the world with, you know, mean kids and, oh, it's so difficult. <laughs> so props to anyone who does it in like like that a lot because I have two and I can't imagine four and I can't imagine doing it back to back to back god bless god bless well this first episode um something it's kind of the idea that i that i kind of have for it is me and joe were crafting the season is so you know i make it no secret i say it often on the podcast that i consume a lot of uh um uh very particularly secular um political commentary um, a lot of um, atheists and agnostics who um, I think give incredibly potent and um, shrewd um, ideas for how we should engage in government and how and what are some policy prescriptions that can move us closer towards human flourishing. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, of course, they talk about Christianity often um, because uh um, a, a lot of them are very left leaning and their political opponents or their political, um, you know, the other side of the aisle that they engage, maybe a better way to say it is, uh, you know, uh, a lot of that constituency are fundamentalist uh, evangelicals or fundamentalist Christians um, that inhabit the Republican Party. And so it's always interesting to hear them talk about that other side. And one of the things that I catch often in their rhetoric is like they feel like when they respond to some of the issues that happen or some of the things that come up or some of the content that comes up socially from um, the religious right is they almost feel like they have to talk people out of some pretty cult-like behavior. Um, You know, uh, like a lot of like group think, um, a lot of like anti-intellectualism, a lot of anti-science um, <clears throat> a lot of like strange practices that they feel like 
are very natural within religion and particularly whatever religion they're talking about that day. Um, and so, and, and, you know, they do make a really healthy distinction between um, uh, fundamentalist Christianity and progressive Christians, because a lot of, there are a lot of people on the left that are um, progressive leaning uh, Christians and still would hold to um, a lot of the Orthodox understandings of our faith. So they do make those distinctions. But ultimately, I've always been thinking like, man, how how can we as Christianity do an even better job of like genuinely distinguishing ourselves from um, having any appearance of being a cult? And I know that sounds like strong language, but if you really think about it, we have a founder of our religion and we're going to break this down. So I'm not going to just leave it at these shocking things I'm about to say, but we do have a founder of our religion who said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Um, we do, uh, you know, in, and it's funny enough in the, uh, in the, um, first century church or the early church, um, there were myths that when we performed the Eucharist ceremony or the Lord's supper, that we were slaughtering children and eating them. Um, there were myths that we were engaging in incest because we called each other brother and sister and married one another and, you know, had kids and, and all of that. Um, and, uh, we definitely have a significant amount of groupthink. We have dogmas, we have doctrines. We believe that a person was raised from the dead. We believe in miracles. Um, we do have a lot of aspects to our, I mean, we, we gather every Sunday and have, you know, uh, ceremonial rites that we perform, whether that's baptism or, you know, the Lord's supper, feet washing. I mean, people see that at Christian weddings, like there are things about us that someone observing from the outside, you know, if they blink too fast, would be like, oh, snap, what 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 are they got going on over there? And so what we want to do in this episode is make some 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 distinctions um, or, or separate ourselves from even maybe those uh, maybe even those accusations. And so uh, so I kind of set that up and I'm just curious. I don't know where you guys are. Do you, do, do you guys see some of those parallels um, and whether you see them or not, um, just some early thoughts on like what, you know, what are, what are, well, we'll just start with, do y'all see some of those parallels before we even get to the second part? I mean, yeah, hundred percent. I just, I coming from someone who is vehemently atheist and then converting to Christianity, I, yeah, I've 100% had those thoughts that you've just laid out, right? And I think part of it is um, you kind of see what you want to see. And, and maybe this is like me having more church hurt and trying to other Christianity, right? Separate myself away from it. It's easy to kind of villainize the, the cult seeming practices that Christians um, partake in, like the Lord's Supper and the washing of feet and the meeting on Sundays. And, and I think anytime you use the, like, it's, it's kind of the, the, whatever rhetoric is associated with cult is like very, it's just always derogative, like in a negative light. And so uh, now I think you're right. All of those things, I can easily see them. And I, and I know even now, like being someone who like actively goes to church and practices these things. I'm like, if you, if you talk about it and kind of take yourself outside of it, like, yeah, that does sound like a cult, right? If you didn't just take away the word Jesus or, you know, the name Jesus, like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think some, I would totally, you know, 
uh, agree with those thoughts. Like those, if you step back and look behind the curtain, or or maybe just kind of get a bird's eye view of what we're doing here. Um, yeah, following Jesus really has a lot in common with a lot of religious movements. Um, you have a charismatic leader, you have a sacred text, you have a community that grew organically and was very very radical at its beginning. Um, you have, you know, splits and and infighting and and different flavors that um, kind of are formed over time. You have some sense of truth, like capital T truth, that um, is bigger than what can be encountered outside. Um, you have some grand vision for the future. So all of these characteristics are, I mean, they're really common with religions in general. That That is uh, a big part of almost all faith movements is, you know, those characteristics that separate faith and faith movements from just kind of our everyday normal life in a secular, humanistic, pluralistic society. Um, so what is it about Christianity that is actually unique or worthwhile? That's a great question. If we zoom into the question, is Christianity a cult? Um, well, we got to think about what is a cult? Um, what, is it, what does it mean? We have a kind of cultural idea of what a cult is. Um, we, you know, we think of drinking the Kool-Aid. We think of these kind of people who are really obsessed with this community and this idea, um, and they and they zone in. Um, we think of strange practices. We think of kind of this idea of separation from the outside world. Um, if you if we look at what a cult means, um, it's almost always I mean, we subjectively we think of the word cult as negative or kind of like dismissing an idea. But really, the core of any culture is a cult. I mean, a cult is the root word of the word culture. And we celebrate culture. We are all members of different cultures. We all participate in our cultures. These cultures are formed around some sense of commonality, some sense of common ideals, uh, maybe a vision for what we want our cultural culture to achieve in the future. Uh, maybe maybe our culture was founded. America has the uh, legend or myth of the founding fathers. Um, indigenous people have their own culture that draws its roots to tribes and tribal chieftains and language and, and religion. Um, so every culture at its core is kind of a cult in the more technical sense. But what is it that takes something from being, you know, your standard culture and becoming this kind of the weird cult, the the out there ones? Well, it's almost always because there's there's a few signs that we can see. Sometimes it's centrality around a singular personality that's really extreme and outside. Sometimes it's um, excessive devotion. It's almost like you have to reject every other culture in order to be part of this true or, or better cult. Sometimes, it, like Josh was saying earlier, there's a sense of denial of truth from other sources. So you can't believe science. You can't believe other forms of um, learning or you can't really have dialogue with people from other backgrounds because... Um, we have truth and we need to share our truth with others. Sometimes the separatism is so strong that you can't even share your truth with others. 
It's all about um, keeping the group together, keeping the group unified. And there's such a high barrier to entry to enter the group that it's like, oh, we don't even really need to grow. We just need to um, be uniform, not just unity, but uniformity. Um, and so, and so those are some. Yeah, the sense of purity. Mm -hmm. There is a sense of purity but there. A sense of like purity of the group. Absolutely, that needs to be upheld. And and unfortunately, in some reform circles today, we're seeing a little bit of that rhetoric. Now, of course, they would have some distinguishing marks from what they believe is you know cult like behavior and what they're actually trying to achieve. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, you know, you look at like. Um, you know, when I say reformed, I'm talking about people who are uh, classically um, Calvinistic um, and uh, have a very strong view of the sovereignty of God, predestination, election, as far as who gets to who are who are uh, a part of the people of God. And, you know, you look at like, I mean, they <clears throat> they make really strong lines on like what type of worship you can participate within. Um, wh what type of very particular reading of the Bible? Um, what type of very particular Bible translations you can read? Um, <clears throat> they start to make really strong things on like, uh, of course, gender and, and how gender works within the church space and who gets to be in leadership, very strong attitudes towards even what you wear, how you talk, um, how you act. And, you know, some of that stuff, and we're going to get to this, you know, a little bit in the episode, but some of that stuff in the Bible, but I don't think it's framed with the same kind of really hard line. But, you know, what makes this conversation so interesting, y'all, is that cults are a massive topic in our culture right now, particularly in the arts. So a couple of my favorite films, um, <clears throat> uh, Hereditary and Midsommar, a couple of my favorite horror films are kind of uh, designed around the idea of a cult, one cult that is a little bit more hidden in the film and hereditary kind of shows up more towards the end that um, this particular woman had always been a part of this kind of group or community. And then the other movie, Midsommar, it's a pretty loud um, cult-like behavior where they, you know, these, this group of teenagers or, or group of college students, excuse me, step into a community um, to observe it, um, do some research on that, on that community. Um, and so you see, you know, some kind of louder, um, overt expressions of cult-like behavior in those films. And, um, yeah, and it, I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, it's, in, it's in a lot more films. Um, and, and I, and I don't know about y'all, but I, I think it's in a lot more films because I think people are worried. And I think particularly some writers are worried. Our, our society is a little bit more nervous. Um, that that cult-like behavior is becoming more normative in what's supposed to be an enlightened, you know, post-enlightenment era. I think when they see things like the Trump movement or some aspects of Christian nationalism, I, I think they begin to say like, oh, snap, like those are kind of cult-like movements or behaviors. And we don't want to necessarily see that become the dominant theme in what's supposed to be a pretty enlightened society. Yeah, I mean, we can look at a less controversial example like QAnon. Like, I would say the vast majority of people would say, yeah, QAnon's a cult. I mean, look at January 6th. The shaman 
self-titled shaman strolls up to the Capitol during this group raid and he's what's he wearing he's wearing like a buffalo skin or something and he's got like tribal inspired you know garb and and these people are are you know the people the same people who say you know thin blue line and like we gotta you know keep our keep our police uh you know fight for law and order they're literally killing the police in the way to storm the capital to like declare that a democratic election was fraudulent um i mean that that really happened in our near history and it's not even a religious movement but what's happening is that because um it's almost like because our culture is becoming more secular uh, people will put their their core human desire for religion somewhere, and the somewhere that it's going is in politics. All right, Sunina, that was a lot. We're really curious to hear your thoughts. Like, wh- what do you think about this idea of um, kind of like what what is a cult and 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 how are how are cults shaping our culture now? It's interesting. I think any time you go from someone who has maybe a looser ideology or looser boundaries behind religion or what should be done morality what you should or shouldn't do everything might like the person on the like more right conservative side or i mean the left can look at the right and say oh well, they're, they're just a cult right so an atheist looking at christianity christianity looking at any of the cults that we have here like QAnon, things like that um so i don't know i just think it's like a perspective is a big thing about like are you part of the majority or you know at what point like what lens are you looking through and then I think another thing is just like a rise in like globalization that like this isn't cults aren't new or like other like what you were talking about like it I think it's more it's new in the western society and that's what people are freaking out but tribalism witchcraft things like that this is not brand new information I think it's more of what we're seeing a lot more people play into in the West than what we're used to. And I think that's why it's kind of freaking people out. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and like I said, especially when we are post the enlightenment where, you know, everything was supposed to, okay, now we're, everything can be reasoned. It can be, we can, you know, it can be proven by science um, or at least some type of scientific, scientific reasoning or logic. Um, and so it becomes a little bit more difficult <clears throat> to embrace any type of spirituality. I was listening to a great conversation between um, <clears throat> someone who's a descendant of Native Americans and uh, and a, a political uh, pundit. And um, one of the questions he asked her was he was like, do we need to. He's like, I think you guys's argument would be a lot more potent. If you didn't talk about some of the ancient spirituality that's that has been a part of, you know, um, you know, pretty much universally all of the, you know, former tribes of of Native Americans and people groups of Native Americans that were in um, uh, uh, ancient America. And uh, and she was like, no, I mean, that she was like, she's like, personally, I don't like um, have any like spirituality to my own life practice but she was like but undeniably like they wouldn't know how to have conversations about land back or um how uh their um culture could be more prevalent and properly displayed in society 
um, policy issues, things of that nature. Like they was like, she was like, she's like a lot of, you know, our elders, grandparents, even just parents um, just wouldn't even know how to have a conversation about what their future could look like as far as their human flourishing in the American context without talking about spirituality. And so I think what's even great in this conversation that we're having for people who are either on the outside looking in on Christianity or have been a part of Christianity, been hurt by some of the kind of rigid practices that they experienced within the faith um, or, or, or just, you know, negative actors within the faith. I think it's even a good challenge to the left or to more um, <clears throat> kind of um, really strong enlightenment, like anti-spirituality um, people to understand that like, hey, spirituality is still very important. And like you were saying, Nina, most cultures in the world have some kind of aspect of spirituality not only to their history, but to their modern practices and to neglect all of that and put it all under the umbrella of ooh, some of that looks a little cult like would be incredibly inappropriate. Yeah. And I, I would just wonder too, of like even looking at, okay, why now do we feel this like rise in like really like even QAnon or I just think like coming out of COVID where, or even just like the age of, um, technologies where you're so connected at all points and every time, I feel like people are more isolated now than ever. So if you can kind of just latch on to anyone who um, you share an ideal, like an ideology with, like, of course, you're going to do that. So people are kind of craving connection. They're craving community, right? What jo Joel was saying is basic human innate desire for that pull towards, you know, God, religion, whatever you want to call it. I feel like Maybe that's why we're seeing a rise in this intense, like, you know, cult-like mm -hmm. behavior with QAnon and things like that. Yeah, I mean, the, the human desire for purpose and meaning and significance is so powerful um, that when we don't have a spiritual outlet for those things, then, well, what is our solution? So what what is our solution to um, the Earth's crises, such as... Um, climate change or income inequality or gender inequality? You know, what is our solution? Well, the vehicle that you have, if you don't have a religious worldview, is politics. And so that's why we get nationalistic ideas saying that, no, we need to preserve um, our national identity. This is our culture and we can't um, let go of it to um, just appease, you know, every little diverse y unicorn snowflake out there. Um, at the same time, there's a movement of we have so much injustice in the world and policy change is the solution to that injustice. Now, to be fair, there is an element of truth to that. However, when our entire identity is so wrapped up in that political agenda and that agenda is so... Um, is stripped of any nuance or discussion or debate. And when that agenda um, is just about constant progress toward an ideal that we don't even, we don't even agree on what the ideal is, nor do we really know is the ideal even possible. And does that ideal strip away people's cultural identities in their uh, diversity, in their spiritual convictions, 
Um, and so, you know, there's, there's so many angles we could go with this, but, but people are gonna have some sense of core belonging and purpose. I think, I think that almost always happens. It's pretty rare that you find someone who's just kind of like going with the flow or maybe some people do go with the flow, I would say. Um, but I would say a lot of them either aren't happy with that or they aren't satisfied with that, or they're kind of checked out and if you push, if you put their feet to the fire, they'll say there is some kind of core identity um, pulling them in some direction. There is some value that they hold that is um, higher than other values. Like they're gonna, they're gonna prioritize certain visions. I don't know what do you, what do you guys think about that. Oh no, I think that's really good. I, I think, um, <clears throat> yeah, I think that's really good. And. And, you know, at, at the risk of caricaturing, I, I think that was still a really good explanation of like um, kind of things that a lot of um, Christian writers have done an incredible job kind of engaging is like, um, you know, any type of idealization of anything or, you know, um, can lead to way too much identification within an ultimate like um, ultimately some like light cult-like implications and stuff. That's really good. I think where we could take the conversation now that we've kind of really defined kind of where our culture is with it and some of the nuance there. And then also um, <clears throat> some of the similarities that people are seeing with Christianity and cults is like, let's take a couple of angles of like looking at, okay, but, but where can we make some distinctions between Christianity and a cult, and then where can we take some of the positive aspects that are just within the idea of culture, like you were talking about, Joel, and say, yeah, that's a part of Christianity that may look weird from the outside, but you probably have some of that in your own, you know, secular space as well. And these are actually really good practices within Christianity. So it's probably best that we start with our founder. Okay, so so we got a guy in Jesus of Nazareth. Um, very, very little microscopic um, debate in the academic world of, of, on whether Jesus of Nazareth uh, actually lived. It's not. It's a. It's an academic consensus that he did, um, and uh, and and we have a lot of um, evidence of what he did while he was here. And so you have someone who did three things that, if we're honest, um, a lot of. Uh, founders of some pretty negative cults probably would run parallel with. So A, he said he could forgive sin. So he didn't say I can forgive a sin or something that happened to me, but I can forgive sin universally in general. Like you as an individual who wronged someone else, I can forgive that sin and free you of that guilt. He um, accepted worship. There's multiple times in the New Testament where people um, worship him. And unlike the angels or some prophets in the Bible who quickly rejected someone overly idolizing them or worshiping them, Jesus actually accepted it. And then thirdly, Jesus would tell stories or parables. And um, in those parables, he would have a figure that was very akin to Israel's God, Yahweh, um, and he would make himself 
that central character. He would say that that Yahweh figure, that person that is rescuing people or um, demanding certain things of his constituents, um, that is me. I am, I am he. Um, and so, you know, saying you're God, forgiving sin and, and accepting worship are very cult-like activities for a founder. And so as Christians, how do we respond to those actions of Jesus and then tell someone who's on the outside looking in, oh, no, our founder is not a cult leader. I have an answer, but I'm curious how, how you guys respond. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. I just have a really quick thing. You know, if we think about um, people like Joseph Smith or Muhammad or, um, you know, the Buddha or, you know, Lao Tzu, those people did not do those th- those things. Like what Jesus mm. did is more extreme than those other faith leaders. That was just something real quick that uh, popped in my head. But Nina, I want to hear your take. No, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head of where I was going. Lisa, is that like anytime you say things or anything, right? It's either true or it's not true, or maybe partially true, and you can get into objective truth and all that stuff. But did Jesus do all the the things he said he was going to do? Kind of like fact check yourself there. And even Josh, you were saying that like there are historians, right, that are you know like maybe don't identify with Christianity, but it's an undeniable truth. We could say that Jesus was a real person and we can kind of just go down the line from there. Um, so he is who he says he is or he's not, right? Or he's a fictional person that didn't do any of these things. So um, I think that's kind of where you have to start the conversation. 100%. And, and you know, I you know, I, I would say like, <clears throat> you know, it's either a good thing or a bad thing, kind of what you were saying, Joel, of like, yeah, he did go farther than a lot of the guys that have some of the biggest, you know, cult-like following in, in world history, you know, the, the Mormon uh, founder and also the founder of um, <clears throat> uh, Islam. Uh, and so uh, he did go farther. And so that's either a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. It's like, it could be a good thing because it could mean, Hey, then he really was tapped into something that's way different than these guys. Or it could be a bad thing of like, then he was even more out of his mind exactly, <laughs> and, and insane, you know, than the other guys. But, you know, a, a, a couple of quick hits for me of like things that I've responded to those claims of like, hey, those are pretty sketchy, like cult-like attitudes from your founder. And I'm like, okay, well, uh, just a couple of quick hits. I don't think miracles are the end-all be-all of this conversation. But I think they do in many ways vindicate the things that he said. Like if someone goes around saying, you know, um, I can forgive sin. He literally actually does that in the stories, the story with the paraplytic, um, you know, when he heals the man who is a uh, paralegic, uh, he then says, well, you know, he actually says to the Pharisees who are doubting that he could heal this guy. He's like, okay, well. Uh, what's it harder? Let me tell him to get up and walk. Um, and so, it, you know, it's, or the Pharisees are questioning whether he can forgive him. And he says, well, we'll see if he can stand up and walk. So I, I do think those miracles do have, and, and, you know, of course, in our, <clears throat> in our modern day of, you know, um, science kind of being a comprehensive understanding of how we engage everything in the world and reason a lot. You know, I, I always want to contend to people who are like, well, 
come on, you, you can't really get me to believe that, um, that, 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 that guy really went around, you know, getting people to stand up, stopping storms, casting out demons, so on and so forth. And, and, and you know, my, my normal response to that is they may, th- those people back then may not have had the same, um, modern scientific categories as we have, but they knew something abnormal when they saw it. And when Mary was pregnant, Joseph didn't see her, even though she was a virgin, and just say, well, you know, I guess it's just beginning to look a lot like Christmas. His natural response was, I know how, like, babies work, and she must have cheated. You know what I mean? And the, the miracles stunned people, and people doubted when they saw the resurrection. And, and, and so it's like, those people weren't just naive. So if they're going to document that he was doing these things. He was probably doing these things. And then one last quick piece is I think he vindicates every single action he does by the fact that he rose from the dead. And that's one where it becomes very difficult historically to deny that Jesus rose from the dead. There's way too many eyewitnesses way too much evidence. It's hard to put all the other puzzle pieces together accurately without that being the explanation. And so those are two things. And at the very least, um, you have a community, even for the most skeptical critics, at the very least, there is a large community who knows what death is. They're not stupid. And they're saying, you know what? We believe that this guy rose from the dead even though every time he said so, we never believed him or we never understood what he was saying. And even though our leaders were also skeptical and even though, you know, we we made fun of the initial witnesses to this crazy event. So at the very least, you had to say, even if this resurrection didn't happen, it is extremely strange whatever it was that started this, like these people really believed it and they were willing to go to extreme lengths and risk it all and lose everything in order to um, carry on that message. Now, obviously we have other historic historical examples of people risking it all and doubling down on these ideas that they have. Um, I mean, that's how so many cults happen. That's what, you know, where we get, the term drinking the Kool-Aid from. It's this willingness to double down on allegiance to an idea. So just because it's allegiant doesn't make it true. However, it does, um, it is worth us taking a second look and it is worth us probing deeper. Mm-hmm. I just think it's like interesting and I, I feel like I have a lot of compassion for the person like me who may be looking at Christianity and Thing. like how is this any different from a cult because i think josh anything or even joel anything that i'm hearing you guys saying it like is kind of confirming that like the radicalism the side of christianity is radical right the whole raising from the dead the the jesus saying you know like eat my body and my flesh or my the flesh my blood you know drink this and and i just think like it is because the stakes were higher and he went that way, but it was just about everything. The person of Jesus was so radical. It was so countercultural in the way that he lavished grace upon us and the way that he did everything that it's kind of hard. Like if you do look at it, it's like, no, this, this kind of does sound like a cult. You know, like I just think that in the differentiation, you're pointing out a lot of like kind of 
radicalism that you would al- align with cults, like a cult. And so I'm just kind of like, <laughs> yeah. Well, see, I would, I would argue differentiate ourselves, but like, <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. I, w- I would I say that you yeah. know, just because something seems like a cult, that that's not automatically a bad thing, um, because we all have our own cults, and that, that I mean, that's like I said earlier, that's the root of any culture, and so. Um, yeah, everyone, I would say, you know, the vast majority of people probably subscribe to some sort of tribe that's their primary tribe. And that primary tribe probably has charismatic leaders and um, core visions and, you know, values that they seek for the future and uh, clear ins and outs and those sorts of things. So just because something is, you know, quote unquote, cult like doesn't mean that it's automatically bad or dangerous or unhealthy. Um, it can quickly become that way. But that that's not that's not what makes, you know, our negative connotation of cults bad. The negatives arise when there is threat to others. There's threat to the members when when there's a se- severe detrimental effect to the community and this larger society as a result of this group's flourishing. Yeah, that's such a good point, Joel. I, I love that because well, you know you look at like the Martin Luther King movement. Let's call it what it was. Like, yes, it was a civil rights movement, and there were plenty of other people around who were doing exceptional things. Rosa Parks, Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, uh, you even look at the, you know, the Black Panther movement and there was a lot more uh, energy going on. But at the end of the day, we we kind of identify that whole era behind one man's really extraordinary work. And in many ways, Martin Luther King was leading a cult-like movement. Uh, Bernie Sanders today is somewhat leading a cult-like movement. There are so many people who have embraced uh, progressive left-wing ideology um, because of this leader. And so you're right. It, where it becomes dangerous is when you have uh, dangerous practices that are now you have things where people are looking to harm, be exclusionary, um, be bigoted, um, and, 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 you know, more dangerous movements. But, but I, but I guess, you know, my, my thing with Jesus is that I think really the, that where I'm distinguishing him is I think his, his claims, were incredibly radical, but I think there's there's a third aspect I would add. Um, his morality was exceptional and compared to leaders of cults. Um, uh, how he treated women, how he looked at those on the margins, how he rejected power, how he actually rejected the movement that was following him on innumerable occasions. Stop! Don't make me a king. Don't you know? Don't don't you know? Take you know completely uh, um, rethink the paradigm that you have behind what it means for me to be a messiah. Um, and, and so his morality and what it means and how to be religious. Yes. What it means, what it means to practice. Religion. And so in many ways, his morality um, kind of pushed away from any other founder of a cult. Um, and, and then when you do look at the miracles and the resurrection, they vindicate the radical claim. Um, you don't have any other cult uh, leaders who can say I defeated death or who can say I healed, like actually physically, like could be verified in a laboratory 
healed the majority of my constituents. Um, and so, yeah, try to make some distinguishing. But, but, but I think if we do take the next step and move into the rhythms and traditional aspects of our faith, um, there, there are still some cult-like things. And we just need to distinguish kind of what you guys are saying, like, are some of these things just good culture things? that it's okay that people think they're a little weird, but they're good. And there are some of these things like actually like kind of negative aspects that we should kind of leave behind. And a lot of that's going to come down to our ceremonial rights and our ethics that we practice. Um, So we have ceremonial rights of we dunk people underwater. We eat uh, bread and drink wine. Um, uh, Most people weekly at the very least, some people um, uh, quarterly in the year. We wash people's feet. Um, we, uh, you know, we have very particular ways that we practice a wedding. Uh, it's become normative in American society, but that this is not the way that most societies throughout world history have practiced a marriage ceremony. We have very unique things that we do within that marriage ceremony that come from our faith. Some of them that don't, and we could, we could. We could dive into that if we want to, but, um, you know, and so we have those rights and then we have, then we have ethics. We, we, in a world like today, one of the strangest things you can tell someone is don't have sex before marriage is that is it, it that actually calling it immoral to have sex outside of marriage. That's a really weird thing. Like, let's be honest. It, it, it's weird. It's weird to those looking in, you're literally telling someone on a Friday night, they're making a connection with someone that they've been connecting with for a while. They can't go and it would be immoral for them to have consensual sex with one another. Um, and so we have some, we have some ethics things that are very unique and strange. And so, you know, before I say anything more like my thoughts on that, what, how, 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 how do we respond to that in our faith from you guys? And I, I kind of circle back to like, oh, whatever you're doing and identifying, like, even if it's something that you think that this is something we should be practicing within the Bible, it's also like how you're going about it, I think is really important. Because I think we'd be amiss to say that even the things of like, not having sex before marriage, right? Maybe intent versus impact, because I, I would argue like it has had a huge and very large negative impact on culture at large, even though we can at a high level, like cerebral say like, oh no, this makes sense. I understand what Jesus is saying. I understand what Christianity agrees with that. But I I do believe we'll deal with the ramifications of these traditions or these beliefs that we're upholding, right? Um, And I think you kind of go down, and I don't know if either of you guys are listening to the the Rise and Fall of Martel. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. It's fantastic, right? Mm -hmm. But even that church, was kind of like this little cult and I say little is still a very large church, right? It's mm. still practicing, like still claiming to worship Jesus, but then the, the kind of nuances of like toxic masculinity and things that were kind of interwoven, I would say are more cult like. So what makes the difference between Mark Driscoll being this this pastor who's maybe a charismatic leader who is aligning himself like with, you know, everything that checks the boxes of maybe cult. Like, why isn't that a cult? Why is that still considered Christianity? And I guess that's why we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but a very long way of saying, you know, like, I think it boils down to the person. And I hate that response because it's so nuanced. But no one actually knows. Yeah. You know, it's all subjective, right? It, it can be really easy for us um, to kind of put any 
practice we think strange or or outside of some norm say ooh that's cult like behavior but um and and Nina I definitely think you like hit on some really good points there and I would totally agree what if we took a step back and we said well what what does it even mean to be normal right if quote unquote cult like behavior is abnormal what is normal like is it normal to at the beginning of you know is it normal to gather in a stadium of a hundred thousand people uh, where half the people are wearing one color and half the people are wearing another color and then um 22 guys in padded clothing and helmets are on a grass field and there's a skinned you know a pig skin oblong shape in between them and everyone is screaming at the top of their lungs and then at the very beginning everyone both of the colors will put their hand over their heart and will say how they are allegiant to a piece of fabric that is flying in the middle that has 50 stars and 13 stripes and three colors and you see where I'm going with this. Like, there's so many things in our life and society that we would say, yeah, that's normal. Like, that's how we do things. But if you took, you know, somebody from a, a different country and, and just plopped them in the middle, they'd be like, wow, this is some weird behavior. Why are these people like saying that their hearts and their allegiance is connected to this um fabric that is floating and why at the same time you know half these hundreds of thousands of people are at war with one another but they're also united under this grander ideal um but there's also some people kneeling what's up with that and you know there's so many things in our society and um this this yearning this kind of hope for um transcendence and unity and culture is everywhere and the goal is not to say oh let's take out all the weird stuff but the goal is saying whatever symbolism or um, sources of meaning that we have let's make sure that that sources those sources of meaning and purpose and truth are pointing us and leading us to a vision of truth goodness and beauty where we are truly cultivating a vision for a transformed world and that kind of dovetails into another point that I have, which is about saying, you know, if you look at the evangelical world and the world of quote unquote apologetics, where we are making a defense for the faith and, you know, anyone who asks you for the foundation of your faith, be prepared to have an answer. And there's a lot of like kind of logical reasoning and there's debating atheists and all this stuff. And that's a huge phenomenon, the world of apologetics. I mean, that's, that's not sustainable mainly because people nowadays don't care about whether or not you can historically prove that the resurrection happened. I think what people care about nowadays is, is does your movement pull the world toward a vision of hope and beauty and um, does it get us out of the mess that we're in? So I think the best apologetic for Christianity right now, the best um, defense that says, no, we're not some weird random cult. Like we're actually, um, we actually believe that that the core of following Jesus is truth and proving that that truth is not, you know, a matter of historiography or uh, philosophy, but I think it is more connected to the ethics and the vision of hope 
and like you were saying, Josh, like some of our ethics are controversial. Um, but I think, you know, for the average person, they'll say, oh, I'm not going to wait till marriage to have sex. Like that's stupid. But for someone who's been through multiple broken sexual relationships and has seen the damage that it, that that can do to their lives, the ethic of Christianity that says marriage is a beautiful covenant between two people that is um, a symbol of how God wants to relate with his people and a symbol of the radical love that our creator has for us. And love is not a cheap thing to be thrown around and um, discarded, but is rather something that is a serious um, covenant and promise and a s- symbol. That That is probably a better apologetic than, you know, anything, uh, you know, these stereotypical apologists can do. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about that idea of kind of redefining the defense of the faith. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I think that's actually the point of all of the, the ceremonial rites and the ethics that Paul and Jesus were talking about and the old Testament was talking about. I, I actually think <clears throat> that's what Jesus kept trying to explain to the Pharisees and the religious aristocracy of his time was, hey, we don't do these like ceremonial rites like as just robotic practices. They have ethical implications. And so when we do baptize people, we are saying, hey, this person used to be someone who was selfish and um, not afraid to put themselves before any community, whether that's the people of God community or their own just neighborhood community, their national community, whatever community, they they weren't afraid to harm people. They weren't afraid to oppress people. They weren't afraid to defraud and take advantage of people. And they are now saying, hey, they want to live differently. They want to now live with a vision of people being made in the image of God, being deserving of uh, dignity and proper treatment. Um, they're now calling themselves to live an honorable and human flourishing lifestyle. And so we are symbolically saying that we are going to dump them in the water and that that old selfish, um, self that is engaging in oppression and wickedness and wrongness towards their fellow man and rejection of God's understanding of wisdom that ultimately does have implications for how they treat their fellow man in a proper way, they're dying to that and they're rising to a new life of an honorable and good person. And, uh, and we believe that for all of those awful things, all the awful ways that we defrauded and took advantage of people like Zacchaeus, who like was like, yeah, man, I've taken advantage of a lot of people as a tax collector and stolen from a lot of people and made a lot of people poor. Um, and my kind of own personal pursuits. Um, when we, eat the bread and drink the wine we're saying hey someone someone said hey i'll take all the consequences for that like I'll, all the consequences for how you oppressed and wronged people yeah i'll take all of that on myself all these ceremonial rights are actually ethical um declarations <laughs> of of right living and hopeful humanity and I think where it gets interesting when you step into the specific ethical um, uh, commands or instruction, if you will, from Jesus and Paul, 
we don't have as much specific direct commands as we think we do. I would I would challenge someone to find me the the clear statement of do not have sex before marriage in the New Testament. Now, of course, we can find you know, we can find beautiful implications. And I think the real thing that Paul and Jesus are hitting at, which they've which has been a core theme in the Bible from the beginning of uh, from 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 uh, from the beginning of the book is that sex is sacred. That's why they circumcised themselves in Israel because they were trying to say, hey, this thing that every other culture treats as like flippant and like a lot of times it's not just this consensual Friday night. It's actually rape and sexual assault and taking advantage of people and oppressing people and you know using people as property. Like we're gonna say no, it's sacred and it should probably be practiced within two mutually submissive covenant people who are mutually enjoying and experiencing it and not someone taking advantage of someone else. Um, and then that's where you get Paul saying our body is a temple and, you know, it's, uh, you know, don't quench the spirit. And so it, it's it, it, a lot of times really what happens is, yes, Joel, you're totally right on both fronts, actually. But I, I want to attack that front part of what you said earlier, too, of like, yeah, like everyone's doing weird stuff. You know, you and Nina said that, like, what's normal? Like everyone's doing weird stuff. Um, and then and then when you step into um, uh, what are those weird things? It's like, are those weird things pushing us towards a humanity of hope and goodness and righteousness and honorable behavior and speaking truth to power and, you know, uh, you know, rejecting tyranny and oppression? Like, are those, are those ceremonial rights? Are those ethical principles? Are they pushing us towards that? Or are they pushing us towards what Jesus would constantly rebuke the religious aristocracy for the time of like, no, you guys are actually engaging in like very negative cult-like behavior where you're like, I don't care if you have to starve, you have to obey the Sabbath, you know? And so, um, so I think it's really just a matter of like, when we describe those things, how are we describing them? When we describe baptism, foot washing, the whole point of foot washing is to say that those in power need to also submit to those who are not in power. There needs to be mutual submission. Jesus was like, I'll wash you guys' feet. Um, and, 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 and so that, that has ethical implications for how a boss treats their employees. You know, or and I would, I would argue that it's also about experience too, right? Like I think mm-hmm. you're speaking from the lens of someone who has experienced beauty and the reverence that comes along with Christianity and its practices. Right. But if you're someone whose feet have never been washed or even like physically or metaphorically, right, you're going to have a completely different perspective. So like, how do you, I guess, you know, if you've never been treated with respect or you've never had someone like serve you in this subservient way, how are you going to empathize or even come into this religion or, or other with that lens? You know, I think it's part of like, because anything that quote unquote good that Christianity has done or is doing, you can point to a million things that Christianity is doing wrong with like misogyny, sexual misconduct, anything like that. But I, I think it's by you kinda hit the nail on the head, Josh, it's just that you look at the leader, right? Our leader never did any of these things. The problem we fall into with Christianity is it's men, right? Humans like you and I that are practicing this religion and that's why we get it all so effed up and this bad image of what Christianity is because we're 
quote unquote in charge yeah. with being the image bearers that are naturally at fault, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was thinking along the exact same lines, Nina, like you, you're totally, um, you're totally still in the words out of my mouth. Like I think about like, okay, you, you know, we're, especially we're in a political moment where a lot of Christians have political power and the, <clears throat> you know, Josh, you mentioned like secular progressive movements are really dismissive of Christianity because they're like, what the heck? Like these people are oppressing people. Um, and I was like, yeah, like I would, I would say the best defense to that argument is like, yeah, Christians are really messed up. And and fundamentally, Christians know they're messed up. Like the foundation, a big part of the gospel is that we are aware of our own brokenness. And at the same time, well, who's the perfect example that we have? Well, it's Jesus. If we look at, um, okay, so maybe, maybe politically, um, you know, Christians on the right are supporting, um, you know, hyper-capitalist policies that create income equality. Well, our leader was homeless, and he said that the uh, widow who put, you know, two small copper coins uh, donated more than all of the Pharisees who, um, uh, you know, you know, tithe mint and dill but neglected the weightier matters of the law. I actually literally saw this today at church. Um, I didn't even realize we were going to be talking about this, but um, I picked up a unhoused person who lives in our church's community to bring him to church with me. He's been kind of, you know, connecting with some of our members of our church for a while now. And, the pa- you know, we're passing the plate around and literally everybody in every row is just passing the plate on because everybody who gives in this middle class community is giving online. Like I give online. I'm not going to, I don't carry cash with me. I, I haven't I carry like, you know, maybe a $5 bill once every six months. Um, but it's like, we're all passing the plate and I hand it to this guy. And I mean, dude is living in a tent in the park. Like he is, he is scraping by and he just pulls out all the change in his pocket and tosses it in the plate. And I was like, oh my God, I literally saw this. Like, this is actually happening. Like the ethic of Jesus is the kind of thing that blows, that should blow your mind appropriately. And it is disappointing and frustrating that we don't see it enough. Um, what we see and what makes the headlines are like Nina was saying, like the the pastor in sexual misconduct or um, the religious right political movements that increase income equality and squat and increase gender inequality to, you know, by oppressing women and limiting their capabilities in their communities. Um, y- you know, they're, they're fighting against what they perceive to be um, Marxist or, or um, critical, uh, you know, academic theories and, and, and they're not, um, empowering the vulnerable among them but if you look at jesus and the ethic he had i mean it's it it should appropriately make us uncomfortable that the lives that we think are normal um if they are left unchecked we can create the same subcultures that the pharisees did that when jesus came they did not recognize him as their messiah because they were so caught up in their own battles for power and um, money and self-righteousness and uh, I guess separation from truly uplifting the marginalized. And I think if the church did a better job of uplifting the marginalized, the people who support progressive policies would see that and say, wow, like 
you know, we are fighting for a lot of important things on paper. And I think that's a good thing. But at the same time, these Christians are willing to like really get down and dirty. Um, despite, you know, other people in their so-called tribe fighting against them. And I think that's really beautiful. Well, and, and I and I want to give them the benefit of they do get their hands dirty. Yeah, that's true. I'm not trying uh, to create a caricature uh, by saying like only right, Christians yeah. actually do it, but um, right. I, I think that we, we, we have, have a, a powerful testament. And I think we need to be leading the charge, just like we did in the civil rights movement. One hundred percent. Yeah, and and you know something beautiful that uh, Mt. Wright says um, is he says you know when I'm he's he's like you know when I'm uh, cornered about like the, the awful history of like the church and like how the church has, you know, acted in the last 2000 years. He's like, I'm always like, what, what church were you looking at? Because actually like, if you look from the right perspective and if you look in the right places, the church has been accurately following in the footsteps of Jesus all 2000 years. But if you're just looking at the big organized you know, big, you know, like the, the, the machine that has been the church over the last 2000 years, all the big, pretty, you know, cathedrals and where all the money is and where all the power is. And it's like, yeah, I mean, technically some of those people were Christians, but it's like, that's not, that's not like, those weren't the people who were like actively trying to emulate the founder. He's like, where you, where you find real church history is if you keep looking in you know, the small houses, you know, where the women are and what they're doing and where you keep looking at the groups on the margins who were fighting against oppression or when you keep looking at, um, you know, the, the, you know, some of the, some of the monasteries, like look inside some of the monasteries instead of looking in, you know, the cathedrals, look, look in, look in the desert, you know, look in, look on the margins of society, look at the, look at, look at, look at the little guys, look at the ordinary guys, the marginalized guys, the small guys. And he's like, if, if you look in those spaces, you're going to see actually a very rich, long history of not perfect, but certainly significantly more accurately following in the the dust of of Rabbi Jesus. And so, yeah, I mean, that's 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 really what we want this whole series to be about is let's redirect our lens and like, let's look at the people who are doing it right, because you could say Christianity has been an awful force and a very negative force throughout American history. Or if you look at the right lens and you look at the right groups, you could say, oh my gosh, Christianity kept democracy together. Like Christianity continued to like care for the poor and like, and, and, and is it fair to be that selective? I think so. I I, I think because even though you're getting back a little bit, I'm going to push back a little bit, Josh. Yeah. No, I I hear what you're saying, but it does feel a little like toxic positivity a bit of just like, you know, Christianity has done a lot of really great things because I, and I I am pushing back because I just think of, okay, what about the person who is on the other end of Christianity, not doing a lot of really great things. So I think maybe instead of elevating one or the other, can we hold both of them with the truth and the honor that they deserve that? Yeah. Christianity has been, so much amazing things but also can we have like a fair lens of that they've also a lot of awful horrid things have been done in the name of christianity even if that's not what christianity represents yeah, and so i just wonder like how do you hold both both of those things that, that's a really good point and i think that i think that's fair and and yeah and and you know you're talking at a table of people that have been hurt by the church you know particularly myself, and you know absolutely yeah and so definitely not um 
I'm not letting us off the hook. I think what I am doing though is I'm saying, yeah, if you were like a fervent like defender of slavery or segregation, I'm like, yeah, you you said you were following Jesus, but but you weren't. And whether you were a Christian or not is up to God, and He'll deal with that at the judgment. But you weren't following Jesus, you know. And so I think what N.T. Wright is trying to articulate is we're we're not being like selective here as much as we're saying no what was what were what were the people who actually were following Jesus doing and even though they weren't perfect because I know Christians in my life that accurately follow Jesus and still hurt me and I still hurt people even though I try to actively follow Jesus yeah they weren't perfect but people who are actively following Jesus, that's the legacy of Jesus. You know, it, it, you know, it's similar to like, you know, if someone were to be like a, you know, um, ghoulish capitalist, but say, you know, I was discipled in the thinking of Dr. Martin Luther King. Like you would look at them and you would be like, well, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and so I think the tension there is you're definitely going to have people who genuinely were a part of the faith and genuinely were a part of God's people who did awful things. But a lot of times in those big organized Christianity spaces, what you're actually seeing is antichrists who are wearing the disguise of being a Christian and they're causing tremendous amounts of harm. And and one last little, little, little piece. Can't let this episode go without saying this. I love my atheists and agnostic brothers and sisters. Love them. And they are such allies um, in the fight against um, oppression in the American context today. And in many ways, they are ideologically um, pushing us forward in a lot of better ways than most people who ascribe to uh, saying that they are Christian. But we also have to remember that there are negative aspects of any um, space or movement. And yeah, there was a lot of like secular science and enlightenment ideology that also like really destroyed people's lives. Uh, As a matter of fact, the whole concept of uh, the social construct of racism, um, a lot of it came from evolutionary scientific thinking. And I still subscribe to the idea of evolution when properly understood, but it did come from that. And there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of secular thinking that also still did harm to a lot of the people and to the, to the marginalized. And so all of our hands are dirty and, and I'm not afraid to, to look them in the face and be in full agreement that the church has absolutely destroyed people's lives as one of its victims, right? Um, but all of our hands are are dirty, and I think we we we'd be we'd be remiss not to not to to factor that in as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think this is one of the most like on fire episodes we ever had. Like everybody is just spitting bars of just real clear, you know, focused and 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 really potent ideas of you know what does it mean to be a cult is the cult-like behavior even even the issue um and it's it's so fascinating i think uh i think some of the reasons that some of these like secular progressives who have really like powerful visions for 
the future of America. I think one of the reasons they may not be catching on is because they're not cult-like enough. Like they don't have this grand, um, powerful vision for the future. It's just, it looks so normal that people don't want it. Like there's, if there's nothing magical about it, the human spirit is not like captivated by it um, and captivated by that narrative. Um, And so I think one thing that, you know, if we as followers of Jesus want to do to bring people to Jesus is not like shy away or dismiss or sweep under the rug, these kind of maybe quote unquote strange or cult like practices, but rather embrace them and say, yeah, we're part of a really big narrative. And that narrative is calling for the restoration of humanity and the restoration of the earth to a new and powerful kingdom where um, the oppressed become uh, are, are lifted up and we are no longer divided by uh, race or class or gender, but rather we um, can uh, look to look to a future where um, the mountains are made low and the valleys are brought up. Um, yeah, Nino, but before we close any final thoughts from you as our celebrity guest. Um, no, I, this, this episode is ending a lot like on a higher note than I thought it would. I was coming in kind of pessimistic with this whole thing of like, you can't distinguish Christianity from a cult because it's all about perspective. And now I'm like, no, this is good. I feel warm and fuzzy inside. I always enjoy doing these things with you guys. Um, so yeah, no, I, I don't have anything super enlightened to say. This was a cool conversation. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. I'm so glad that we ended on a high note here because this is a this is a daunting and you know a little a little it's a it's a darker uh, thing to step into waters to wade, but I think it. I mean, honestly, like I think it's just all of us had such unique perspectives to bring in that it helped it be pretty comprehensive and exhaustive and not like and not just beat one drum. And so I thought that was what actually really enhanced the conversation. It was so dope. Yeah. Well, Nina, as always, thanks for joining the program. Um, I don't think you need to self-promote yourself um, again. I think our listeners are probably used to your social handles and your bio. Um, So again, we want to thank you a lot for coming on the program. Listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, We are really excited to kick off this new season um, that we're kind of titling What is Christianity? And so stay tuned with us. Be, you know, We're really looking forward to your feedback and to your ideas and thoughts as we explore this season. Uh, It's a pretty open-ended topic, but we want to kind of hit on a few key themes that can help those of us who have deconstructed reclaim and kind of the core ideals of our faith and um, especially following the founder of our faith, Jesus, that we can really be excited about. Um, so as always, you can email us at the moral minority show at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at moral.minority or on Twitter at minority show. And you can also look at our website where we have started publishing some articles. So Josh has written a couple of articles on hip hop and theology and that is moralminority.space. And so stay tuned. We've got a lot of big things planned um, 
for the end of 2021 going into 2022. We're really looking forward to kind of expanding what we're doing and um, really refining our craft and um, yeah, just getting the highest quality content we can out there. So as always, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time. 